This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, A Brief History with Christine Morgan. Hi, I'm Christine Morgan, and welcome to A Brief History. On this episode, we begin our chapter on Queen Mary I of England and how her reign impacted the city of London, as told, of course, by Sir Walter Besant in his account, London in the Time of the Tudors. Mary's reign is short, but her attempts to reverse course after her brother's Protestant reign are often told as great tragedies in the nation's history. However, the image of a cruel, cold-hearted, and ultimately weak ruler are not necessarily true, as we'll learn. Let's jump back into our story. It was on the evening of the 3rd of August that Mary made her entry into the city accompanied by her half-sister, Elizabeth. She came from New Hall in Essex, where, a few days before, she had received a deputation from the city with a present of five hundred pounds in gold. At the bars of Aldgate she was met by the mayor, who gave her the city sword. In the order of the procession, it is related by a contemporary as follows. Quote, First, the citizens' children walked before her magnificently dressed. After, followed gentlemen, habited in velvet of all sorts, some black, others in white, yellow, violet, and carnation. Others wore satins or taffety, some damasks of all colors, having plenty of gold buttons. Afterward, followed the mayor with the city companies and the chiefs or masters of the several trades. After them, the lords richly habited in the most considerable knights. Next came the ladies, married and single, in the midst of whom was the queen herself, mounted on a small white ambling nag, the housings of which were fringed with gold thread. About her were six lackeys habited in vests of cloth of gold. The queen herself was dressed in violet velvet and was then about forty years of age, and rather fresh-colored. Before her were six lords, bareheaded, each carrying in his hand a golden mace, and some others wearing the arms and crown. Behind her followed the archers, as well as the first and second guard. She was followed by her sister, named Madame Elizabeth, in truth, a beautiful princess, who was also accompanied by ladies, both married and single. Then might you hear the firings of diverse pieces of artillery, cannons, and many rejoicings made in the city of London. Afterwards, the queen, being in triumph and royal magnificence in her palace and castle of Westminster, took it into her head to go and hear mass at St. Paul's, that is to say, at the Church of St. Paul and she was attended by six hundred guards. End quote. On the 10th of August, the remains of the late king were buried according to the forms of the Book of Common Prayer. It was not long, however, before everyone understood clearly the mind of the queen. On the 1st of October, Mary rode through the city to Westminster for her coronation. Sharp notes the significant fact that the daily service at St. Paul's was not held because all the priests, not suspended for Protestantism, were wanted at Westminster Abbey. Queen Mary was crowned with every possible care to return to the old rituals. 
fresh oil blessed by the bishops had been brought over. She was afraid that St. Edward's chair had been polluted by her brother, the Protestant, sitting in it. She had, therefore, another chair sent by the Pope. The death of Edward took place on the 6th of July, 1553, the coronation of Mary on the 1st of October. The Queen must have requested the Pope send her the chair immediately on her accession, if that chair had arrived within only 85 days. In November, Lady Jane Grey, her husband, two of his brothers, and Cranmer were tried at the Guildhall and sentenced to death, but the execution was delayed. Probably in the case of Lady Jane Grey, the sentence would never have been carried out had it not been for Wyatt's rebellion in January of 1554. The ostensible cause was the Spanish match, which was regarded with the greatest dislike and suspicion by the whole people, quote, yea, and thereat, almost each man was abashed, looking daily for worse matters to grow shortly after, end quote. When the rebellion broke out, the city stood loyally by the queen. The companies set watch. No munitions of war were allowed to go out of the city. Chains were set up at the bridge foot, and 500 men were hurriedly raised and equipped. Mary herself showed the courage of her race. She rode into the city and met the citizens at the guild hall, making them a very spirited speech. She spoke in a loud voice so that everyone should hear. No action in her reign shows her nearly so well as this natural and courageous speech. The following is Mary's speech as given by Maitland. Quote, In my own person I am come unto you, to tell you that which yourselves already do see and know. I mean the traitorous and seditious number of the Kentish rebels that are assembled against us and you. Their pretense, as they say, is to resist a marriage between us and the Prince of Spain. Of all their plots, pretended quarrels, and evil contrived articles, you have been made privy. What I am, loving subjects, you right well know. Your queen, to whom at my coronation, when I was wedded to the realm and to the laws of the same, the spousal ring whereof I have on my finger, which never hitherto was, nor hereafter shall be, left off. You promised your allegiance and obedience unto me, and that I am the right and true inheritor to the English crown. I not only take all Christendom to witness, but also your acts of Parliament confirming the same. And this I say further unto you, in the word of a prince, I cannot tell you how naturally a mother loveth her children, for I was never the mother of any. But certainly if a prince and governor may as naturally love their subjects as the mother doth her child, then assure yourselves that I, being your sovereign lady and queen, do as earnestly and tenderly love and favor you. And I, thus loving you, cannot but think that you as heartily and faithfully love me again. And so this love bound together in the knot of concord, we shall be able, I doubt not, to give these rebels a short and speedy overthrow. 
But if, as my progenitors have done before, it might please God that I might leave some fruit of my body to be your governor, I trust you would not only rejoice thereat, but also I know it would be to your great comfort. And certainly, if I either did know or think that this marriage should either turn to the danger or loss of any of you, my loving subjects, or to the detriment of any part of the royal estate of this English realm, I would never consent thereunto, never would I marry whilst I lived. Wherefore, good subjects, pluck up your hearts, and like true men stand fast with your lawful prince against these rebels, both ours and yours. And fear them not, for I assure you, I do not." And I will leave with you my Lord Howard and my Lord Treasurer to be assistant with my Lord Mayor for the safeguard of the city from spoil and sackage, which is the only scope of this rebellious company. End quote. The failure of the revolt was due to the spirited and prompt action of the city. All this belongs to the history of the country, yet we cannot pass over the execution of Lady Jane Grey. It is the most melancholy of all the many tragedies which belonged to the Tower during the 15th and 16th centuries. Perhaps it seemed necessary at the time, in order to prevent other risings like that of Wyatt, in the same way that it had seemed necessary to Henry VII that the young Earl of Warwick should be removed, and later to Elizabeth that Mary Queen of Scots should no longer be an occasion of conspiracy. At the same time, it is wonderful that it should have been thought even possible to bring to the scaffold this girl of sixteen who had been made to play a part. The story of her execution and of her noble words told with simple directness by Hollinshed cannot be read without tears. Quote, by this time, there was a scaffold made upon the green over against the white tower for the Lady Jane to die upon who being nothing at all abashed, neither with fear of her own death which then approached, neither with the sight of the dead carcass of her husband when he was brought into the chapel. She came forth, the lieutenant leading her, with countenance nothing abashed, nor her eyes anything moistened with tears, with a book in her hand wherein she prayed until she came to the said scaffold." whereon, when she was mounted, this noble young lady, as she was indeed, with singular gifts, both of learning and knowledge, so was she as patient and mild as any lamb at her execution, and a little before her death, uttered these words. Good people, I am come hither to die, and by a law I am condemned to the same. My offense against the Queen's Highness was only in consent to the device of others, which now is deemed treason. But it was never of my seeking, but by counsel of those who should seem to have further understanding of things than I, which knew little of the law and much less of the titles to the crown. But touching the procurement and desire thereof by me or on my behalf, I do wash my hands in innocence thereof before God, and the face of all you good Christian people. I pray you all good Christian people to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I look to be saved by no other means 
but only the mercy of God and the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. And I confess that when I did know the word of God, I neglected the same and loved myself and the world. And therefore this plague and punishment is just and worthily happening unto me for my sins. And yet I thank God of his goodness that he hath given me a time and respite to repent. And now, good people, while I am alive, I pray you assist me with your prayers. Then, kneeling down, she said the psalm of Miserere Mei Deus in English, and then stood up and gave her maid, called Mistress Ellen, her gloves and handkerchief, and her book she also gave to Maester Bridges, the lieutenant of the tower, and so untied her gown. The executioner pressed to help her off with it, but she desired him to let her alone. She turned toward her two gentlewomen, who helped her off with it therewith, and with her other attires, and they gave her a fair handkerchief to put about her eyes. Then the executioner kneeled down and asked her forgiveness, whom she forgave most willingly. Then he willed her to stand upon the straw, which done, she saw the block, and then she said, I pray you dispatch me quickly. Then she kneeled down, saying, Will you take it off before I lay me down? Whereunto the executioner answered, No, madam. Then tied she the handkerchief about her eyes, and feeling for the block, she said, Where is it? Where is it? One of the standers-by guided her thereunto, and she laid down her head upon the block, and then stretched forth her body, and said, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so finished her life. Queen Mary's first parliament met with the celebration of Mass, which was ominous, but it was not too compliant. It was ready to restore the situation as it was in the last years of Henry VIII. It was unwilling to submit to Rome, and it refused absolutely to restore church property. Further, it presented a petition against the proposed foreign marriage. Mary's second parliament was more obedient to the will of the queen and gave its consent to the proposed marriage, but refused to reenact the statute for the burning of heretics. Her third parliament went a step further. It reenacted the statute for the burning of heretics. It agreed to reconciliation with Rome, but it refused, like its predecessors, to sanction the surrender of church lands. They were ready to obey their sovereign in matters of faith. The soul may always be left to the care of the church, but property, property, that if you please, belongs to the lay mind. Convocation, on the other hand, was very thorough. It denounced the Book of Common Prayer. It demanded the suppression of the Catechism. It recommended violent measures against the clergy who should deny the real presence and against those who should not put away their wives. This meant revolution. Hosts of priests and those who still survived from the monasteries rejoiced to say Mass once more. Even in the ruined and desecrated churches that were left to them, it meant restoration. Priests sprang up everywhere from the ground. How had they lived for ten years? 
priests in the villages and the parish churches put on their old robes, dragged out the vessels, replaced the host. Ex-monks who had been pensioned from the monasteries, ex-friars who had received no pensions but had been simply turned into the streets, ecclesiastics from abroad, they all came eager to revive the forbidden worship. They looked around them ruefully at the dishonored shrines and the ruined chapels. It would take centuries to make everything as it had been, but still, one must try. In the meantime, think if you can of the deadly hatred which these priests must have felt towards those who had done these misdeeds. Think of the silent satisfaction with which even the best of them would witness the execution of one who had been a leader in bringing about their destruction. But the destruction was stayed. Holy Church was back again, and of course, forever. The great rebellion, they thought, was ended, and as for the clergy in possession, many conformed for fear and for safety. Very few, indeed, gave up their wives. Happy were the contumacious, if the contumacy brought no worse consequence than to beg their bread on the road. Happy if it did not lead to a trial, a conviction, and the certainty of becoming a fiery example." They might have made up their minds at the outset that mercy was not a quality for which Mary would be conspicuous. Before the fires of Smithfield began, there were the executions for the rebellion of Wyatt. It was an excellent opportunity for winning the hearts of the people. Lady Jane Grey's party never had the smallest chance. She herself may have been allowed to be at liberty with no danger to the queen— while to execute her boy-husband was as barbarous and useless as to execute herself. Fifty persons, however, officers, knights, gentlemen, were all put to death in consequence of the rebellion. Four hundred common men were hanged about London. Fifty were hanged on gibbets, and there left to hang a great part of the summer— Meantime, the people of London, partly exasperated by the sight of these gibbets, partly hating the Spanish marriage, partly hating the breakup of the Reformation, showed their minds in every possible way. They shot at preachers of papistry. They dressed up a cat like a Roman priest and hanged it on a gallows in Cheapside. They found a girl who pretended to receive messages from a spirit, and it was called the spirit in the wall. When the Eucharist was carried through Smithfield, a man tried to knock the holy elements out of a priest's hand. On Easter Day, a priest saying Mass in St. Margaret's, Westminster, was attacked by a man with a knife. The Marian persecution began in January of 1555. The queen issued a proclamation that bonfires should be lit in various places in the city to show the people's joy and gladness for the abolition of heresies. This was the signal for the martyrdoms. It is enough to state that the martyrs of this persecution were 288 in number, including five bishops, 21 clergy, 55 women, four children, and 203 laymen. Of the laymen, only eight were gentlemen. I will invite consideration of this fact later on. 
the flames of martyrdom last till within a month of Mary's end. It is difficult to understand how the bishops could believe that the burning of this kind of heretic stamped out heresy. Hundreds, nay, thousands of families went in perpetual mourning for the death of brother or cousin, a martyr faithful to the end. The bishops might have understood the sign of the times. They might have seen the mayor and aldermen trying vainly to show conviction rather than obedience in attending all the processions and functions of the church at which the people looked on sullenly, and with murmurs they might have listened to the wisdom of Cardinal Pole, who pointed out to the queen and the council that these severities were destructive to the Catholic faith in the country. The persecution reads like the revenge of a revengeful woman. Burn, 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 she cries, quote, to avenge the tears of my mother, to avenge the unhappiness of my childhood, to avenge the act that made me illegitimate, to avenge the marriage of Anne Boleyn. Burn, burn, burn. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to this week's installment on Mary I. I hope you'll tune in for part two, which will cover the state of her marriage, her many rumored pregnancies, and her untimely early death. In the meantime, please don't forget to check out some of the other fabulous podcasts hosted by Tudor's Dynasty. Until next time, I'm Christine Morgan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.